Now I want to call up uh, our guest uh, speaker. I am not going to be preaching today. We have a great opportunity to hear from one of our own. Uh, Jake Brown is going to be preaching. Uh, Jake, in addition to being an officer in the Marines, a graduate of the uh, Naval Academy, is, is uh, now in the process of transitioning out of the Marines, and he is a student at Reformed Theological Seminary. He has felt, felt the call to ministry, and so he is working on his Master of Divinity degree and uh, he's going to be transferring to Orlando. His wife is already down there, and he's going to be attending RTS full-time. And uh, he is in the midst of a preaching class, and one of the assignments is to, to preach a sermon. And I'm so thankful uh, for my time in seminary where churches uh, made time available for me to help in my training. And so we're going to get an opportunity to hear from uh, Jake Brown as he preaches the gospel for us. So Jake, come on up, and uh, we are delighted to have you. And uh, let me just pray for you as you're coming up. God, we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. And um, we pray for Jake as he delivers it, uh, that, um, uh, Lord, you would give him effectiveness. And we know that your word never returns void. And for this, we thank you. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Carlos. Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. I turn with me, if you will, to uh, the book of Mark, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 12, it should be on the screens as well. We'll be reading the parable of the tenants this morning. Hear now the words of the true and living God. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them, so they left him and went away. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts this morning to the hearing of your word. Give us understanding. Give us conviction. Give us grace. Lord, we worship you in the gathering this morning, and we thank you for that opportunity. Make our minds ready to receive these words today and remove all the distractions from our hearts. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Well, if you've never read George Orwell's literary classic, Animal Farm, it's a story about a group of animals on a farm. But it's a... Uh, <laughs> It's more than that. It's a, Animal Farm is an extended allegory about the Russian Revolution. And in an allegory like that, every character in the story corresponds with someone or some group of people in real life. And Orwell tells the story of the revolution's beginning and the rise of Joseph Stalin afterwards. Uh, there's a tyrant human who runs the farm, and all the animals band together, and they have their revolution, and they overthrow him. And then they have to elect a new ruling class. And so they elect the pigs, the smartest of the animals, right? And then you have those who kind of go along with everything the pigs say, they don't think for themselves, they just repeat everything that the ruling class says, and they are characterized in the story as sheep. 
then there's the strong working class, right? The majority of any population. And they're represented by a big horse named Boxer. And then there's another character, very interesting one. There's a, there's a raven, and his name is Moses. And Moses doesn't do too much. He's there at the beginning, sort of a pet to the tyrant human, and he's there at the end. But all Moses does is talk about this faraway place called Sugar Candy Mountain, where all the animals go where they die. And nobody really believes in Sugar Candy Mountain. But what we're meant to understand by that is Sugar Candy Mountain is supposed to represent heaven, and Moses the raven is supposed to represent the Russian Orthodox Church. It's a representation of the church in character form although not a favorable one. But the reason we know these characters represent someone else in Animal Farm is because the story is an allegory. The details about what each character in the story says and does give us clues as to who they represent in real life. And likewise, in Jesus' parable of the tenants this morning, we have a story where each character corresponds with someone or some group of people in the real world. And like Orwell's story, this parable is also a warning. Jesus does two things in this parable. He gives us a warning and he gives us a way. First, he gives a warning to the self-righteous to check that their actions match their words, to see that their heart is consistent with their message. And secondly, Jesus gives us just a small hint at the larger plan of what God is doing in Israel through him. He tells us of a way of escape from the coming judgment of God's wrath. So that's the title of today's message, A Warning and a Way. And if you take nothing else from this morning, my prayer for you is that you will recognize the need to heed that warning from Christ and to follow the way that he provides. Let's look first at this warning from Jesus. <clears throat> if we know the background of this story, Jesus is talking to the chief priests and the scribes and elders, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Now, these men would be considered among the most righteous of the time, the most godly. But Jesus is telling this parable to make a point. They are not really pure in heart at all. They are merely sanctimonious. They make a show of being righteous, but their hearts are far from God. And he tells this parable about them. He begins in verse 1 and 2 by telling them of a landowner. Now, be thinking about who that landowner may represent. Let's read the first part of the parable again. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. So there's already a couple characters here, and it's perhaps not so clear to us who is who in the story because we're in a different time and in a different culture. But everyone hearing this story back then would have known immediately who Jesus is talking about. They would have known that Israel is the vineyard and God is the landowner. And that's because Jesus is building his parable from Isaiah 5-7. You don't need to turn there, but it says this, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And likewise, Psalm 80 says this about Israel. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. So it's very clear to those hearing this parable in the book of Mark that Jesus is talking about God establishing Israel among the nations. God has planted Israel in the earth like a vineyard and like a vine. He expects it to produce the fruit of righteousness. And this was a common practice at the time. A landowner or a wealthy investor would get some property and lease it to farmers. And the expectation was that they would work the land and they would get some of the produce, but the landowner himself would also be owed some of the fruit in return. And in the parable after the harvest, the landowner sends his servant to collect the fruit on his behalf. And in the first two verses, everything seems to be going just fine. But when we get to verse three, we see that the tenants do not give the landowner what he is rightfully owed. Let's look at verse three. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head 
and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. The servants of the landowner are horribly mistreated by the tenants, and we're meant to understand that these servants who are mistreated are the prophets of Israel. The tenants are the religious rulers, these very chief priests and scribes and elders that Jesus is talking to. But the prophets are the servants of God throughout history who were sent by him to collect what is rightfully his, to collect the fruit of obedience and righteousness. But instead, they are beaten and killed. Now, Jesus is referring to the death of many prophets throughout the Old Testament um, at the hands of the nation's own leaders. The prophets were often rejected by Israel. We have multiple examples of this. In the book of Jeremiah, we see a prophet named Uriah who was murdered by King Jehoiakim. Jeremiah himself barely escapes a death sentence after prophesying from the Lord against Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles, Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, is stoned to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. What we see from the biblical account is that time after time, God sends his messengers to Jerusalem. God speaks through the prophets again and again, urging them to repent and turn back to him, but instead they kill his prophets. We have a sober description of what that looks like in 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. It says this, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Brothers and sisters, let us not be like those wicked tenant farmers. God in his grace has planted you as well, and he expects the fruit of righteousness in your life. And the question today is, are you bearing that fruit? God has owed your obedience. He has created you to bring glory to him. So I'd ask, are we doing that? Are we a fruitful vine? The Bible says that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I had to go through the song in my head to make sure I got all those. But we ought to ask, do we have those characteristics as vines? Those are the fruits of the Spirit. One other way that I think about producing fruit is by asking myself, am I giving God my first and my best? And this question works in multiple ways. The first and best question. Um, The first and best of my day. When I wake up in the morning, do I pray? Do I read my Bible? Or is the first thing that I do check my phone? Does God get the first and best parts of my day? In the first and best of my week, do I go to church and fellowship with his people and dive into his word, or do I choose to sleep in? Does he get my first and best in time? And secondly, does he get my first and best in devotion? Do I sometimes miss my Bible study because my favorite TV show is on? Do I chase after the approval of other people before I seek the approval of God? If I want to produce the fruit of righteousness, it means giving God my first and my best. And it's very easy for us to come to church and be self-righteous. The danger for those of us who are Christians today is that we can become like the Pharisees and chief priests and the scribes and the elders. The danger for us today is to think that because we are religious, therefore we are saved. But the scribes and the elders show that you can be very religious and still hate the Son of God. If you're not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, if you say you've accepted Christ but your life hasn't changed, if you say you're a Christian but you act like a pagan, people will notice. And if people in the world can easily tell when someone is faking, how much more can the God who sees the heart? You know, this parable is a warning, but there is a lighthearted way of thinking about it. You may have heard this before. There's a story about a zoo that's having a hard time finding exotic animals for all of the exhibits. In particular, they can't find any gorillas. 
So they get an idea. They say, okay, well, we'll just get a gorilla suit and we'll pay one of the zookeepers to jump around in the cage. And so he does, and it's working pretty well for a moment. Um, he's jumping around and everyone seems to be fooled. And then he loses his footing and falls into the next exhibit over, which happens to be full of lions. And so he breaks character and he says, help, help, I'm not actually a gorilla. And then one of the lions leans over and whispers, quiet, you're going to get us both fired. <laughs> you see, being a Christian is not about just putting on a Christian suit. It doesn't mean that you just wear a cross or go to church. It's a condition of the heart. Faith in Christ is not merely a matter of intellect. It's a matter of the soul. It's a matter of your identity. If we're just pretending that when we fall into the lion's den, we will be exposed for who we truly are. You know, in the process of entering the military, each of the branches have implemented some rigorous training standards and a process of indoctrination. And that's the word they use, indoctrination. It's a very biblical word. But, uh, and there's some people in the congregation I'm sure could tell you more about that than me. But uh, it's interesting to me that when you go through it, they don't just call it entering the army or entering the navy. They call it becoming a soldier, becoming a sailor, becoming a marine. There's a sense of transformation that after you've gone through that, you don't just get a title, but your identity changes. Something about your very personhood is different, and it's the same with Christ, isn't it? After you're saved, you don't just walk around with a title, Christian, but it's who you are in the deepest parts of your soul. So Jesus provides this warning to the religious. Righteousness comes from only truly having Christ, from surrendering yourself, your identity, your life to him. You can't fake it, you can't pretend. So heed that warning from our Lord today. Now Jesus gives us a warning, but he also gives us a way. First, the warning is important because there is danger ahead. Judgment is coming. In keeping with the theme of Isaiah 5, the wrath of God has built until there is no remedy. And why? Because they have rejected his son. They have not only rejected his servants and his prophets, they have rejected the beloved son of God. Let's look at the parable again in verse 6. Jesus says, he still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. In these ancient times, if there was no heir to the land, then those who were in possession of it would become the owners. And so selfishly, they kill the son of the landowner in an attempt to steal what belongs to him. And for a short time, it seems like their plan has worked. It seems like the wicked have won the day. But they forgot about one person, didn't they? They forgot about the landowner. And the landowner recognizes that the time for talk is long gone. The time for mercy has passed, and all that remains is for the landowner to come and strike down his enemies in judgment and in wrath and in righteousness. The tenants are murderers, they're thieves, they deserve death. And what we can't miss this morning is that we are also deserving of God's wrath. You and I are just as much sinners as they are, according to the Bible. We know what it says, Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. All have sinned, wages of sin is death. You and I are just as much deserving of it as they are. John 3.16 is often quoted in a happy way and for good reason. But you know there's a strong seriousness to it. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Yes and amen. But the implication is that if you do not believe in the Son, you will perish. Because God's judgment 
and righteousness are real. And if you continue reading in John 3, you'll get to verse 36 and you'll see the following. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Because of sin, the wrath of God rests upon all humanity and it will remain on us unless we choose the way of escape. The only way out is to believe in the Son. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is giving us a warning, but he's also providing us with the way of escape. Turn to Christ. He is the only way. We have punishment coming for us, but there is one way to avoid it, and that is to trust in the beloved Son. Let's look at this again in verse 9. He says, He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. There are two important verbs in that sentence, destroy and give. God will destroy the wicked. His judgment will be passed on them, and he will give the vineyard to others who will give him the fruit he is owed. That last word, my friends, others, that's you and me. The Gentiles, right? Jesus is hinting at the fact that because of their unfaithfulness, God will not only offer his salvation to Israel, but to the whole world, to you and to me. He will give the vineyard to those who do not reject his beloved son. God will give salvation, eternal life, and great reward in heaven to anyone who follows Christ. And we have to recognize that the answer to the question of are we producing the fruit God is owed is no. We have failed to give God what he is owed. Like the tenants, we are rebellious in our sin. And if the story ended there, it would be a very sad story indeed. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and God comes and judges sinners, the end. But that's not where the gospel ends, is it? The gospel tells a different story because the son is not dead. The power of the gospel is that the son rises from the grave and he stands in between you and the landowner and says, Father, give me the punishment that they deserve. I have taken their judgment. See, in this story, the wicked pay for their sins, but in your story, Christ can pay it for you. Verse 10, if you've not read this scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The cornerstone is the foundation of the house, not just of any house, but of the house of Israel. The judgment is coming, but everyone who stands on the cornerstone will be saved. Now, in this verse, Jesus is referencing Psalm 118, and it's important to know that Psalm 118 is a song of rejoicing. It's a song of deliverance. It's a psalm about God's steadfast love, and it says that multiple times. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever forever. Because in Jesus, there is a way of salvation. And there is only one way. You know, I grew up in a, in a small town called Los Alamos in the state of New Mexico, uh, out in the southwest. And I know some of the natural disasters we have to deal with out here are hurricanes and floods. Um, but out there, the natural disaster is forest fires. I remember I was a child back in the year 2000 when the Cerro Grande fire came through and burned our hometown. Um, it was a controlled burn at first. It started on the 4th of May, got out of control on the 5th, and then by the 10th, just a few days later, they recognized that they were not going to be able to stop it from burning through the town. So they sounded the evacuation order. It was a very short order. They sounded it around noon, and they basically just came down our street and said, hey, everyone just get out of town, follow the escape route, don't take anything with you, just get in your car and leave, because there's no time. And I remember my parents just grabbing my brothers and I and throwing us in the car, and I was holding on to my favorite stuffed animal. Um, but you know, the craziest thing to me that I, when I think about it now is that even when the fire trucks were coming down our street, there were still people hesitating. There were still people wondering if they could stick it out, if with their cups of water and garden hoses, they could stop the Cerro Grande fire, which would end up being visible from space. 
you know, we need to recognize the urgency of our soul's situation. It's the same. The fire of God's wrath is coming soon, and it's unavoidable. There's no time to hesitate. So we have to follow the way of escape. But this goes even further. Often the only way to have your house survive a fire like that is to burn out the ground around it. You light a fire of your own and you have that fire burn a ring around your house so that there's no fuel for the larger fire to consume. And at that point, watch this, you're safe because the ground you're standing on has been burned already. And this is such an amazing image of Christ. Because he was burned already so that you can be safe. The wrath of God will come and it will consume everything except for the one who had already consumed on the cross. Christ drank the cup of wrath for you. He bore the punishment of sin and you have only two choices. You can take that punishment yourself or you can stand behind the one who took it for you already. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore the Lord God said, Look, I have laid a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. The one who believes will be unshakable. Christ is the only way to be saved. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's Jesus telling us to stand on him. He is the only way. So have you followed that way? If you're here this morning or if you're watching online perhaps and you're hearing this call from God and you want that salvation, then let today be the day that you put your faith in his son. Let this be the hour that you respond to that call and let this second right now be the second that you decide you can't fight a forest fire with a garden hose. Let Christ bear the wrath of God for you. And if you are already standing on the cornerstone, if you have put your faith in Christ, then rejoice and live like it's true. We've been delivered from the fire. What do we have to be afraid of? As Christians, we should be known as the ones who are calm among the world's chaos. We have a guarantee of safety. There's a lot of turmoil in the world right now, but it's an opportunity for Christians to be seen as the ones with a sure footing. So we should ask ourselves about some of the events that happened recently, perhaps over this past year or even in the few weeks into the new year, and ask yourself, was my faith shaken? Did I let myself trust in the power of man or in the power of God? Did I plant my feet in sinking sand or on the cornerstone of Christ? And I want to suggest this morning that if you were shaken, you didn't have your feet in the right place. There's a fantastic hymn from 1976, simply titled Cornerstone, and it's very powerful words. It says this, Jesus is the cornerstone. He came for sinners to atone. Though rejected by his own, he became the cornerstone. So when I am by trial oppressed, on the stone I am at rest. When the seeds of truth are sown, he remains the cornerstone. There's one foundation to stand on, there's one way to follow, the way of Christ. <clears throat> at the end of the story of Animal Farm, we have one key detail. In the very last line of the book, clues us into what's going on. The pigs in the story, the ruling class, they have become indistinguishable from the human tyrants they once helped overthrow. We might say the pigs are hypocritical. We might also say that they are pharisaical. In this parable, we heard a warning from Jesus to avoid being like the Pharisees. Don't turn into the ones who rejected the Son. The judgment of God is unavoidable unless you place your faith in Christ. And secondly, we heard him tell us how to follow that way. We heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, trust in Jesus. Second, start producing the fruit of righteousness. When the landowner comes, and he is coming, you will be safe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a mighty God, and we worship you. We thank you for giving us your word today. We thank you for letting us gather to hear it. 
Lord, let it stay with us through this week. Let it change who we are. Let others see that we have accepted the beloved Son. We ask all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.